This building has a nickname, the Sanctuary of Freedom. It has another nickname as well, one it shares with congregational meeting houses all across New England, Mouth House. Mouth House is a term used in the 1500s by reformer Martin Luther to describe a Protestant church, a protesting church, emphasizing that the undertaking of a church is a wordy affair, a verbose enterprise. Among other things, for Protestants, a church is a gathering and releasing of voices, a gathering and airing of ideas, of experiences, of perspectives. We are a people of debate and deliberation, all in the service of discerning how best to serve and represent God. Well, in striking contrast to what transpired in protesting meeting houses like this, Roman Catholic and Anglican churches were orderly, compliant, muted, a feat easily accomplished when a church privileges and elevates a single voice, a male priestly voice above all others. Can you see the contrast? Welcome to this old mouth house. A lot has been said here, argued here, debated and disputed here, agreed and decided here. It has not escaped my notice that across the centuries, the most significant voices emanating from this mouth house, the most persuasive and consequential, were not those of the clergy who preached here, but of the lay women and men who orated here whose poetry is associated with this house, whose speeches and lectures, pamphlets, broadsides, tracts, and correspondence were the foundation, the groundwork, the underpinning, the argument and architecture for a democracy in the making. Among the most consequential of all the voices associated with this mouth house that of patriot and orator, James Otis. In the 1760s, in this house, Otis asserted that all people, women, persons of African descent, enslaved persons, all people are endowed with the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and property. Inalienable meaning absolute, meaning unassailable. It was James Otis who coined the phrase, taxation without representation is tyranny. Along with Sam Adams, John Adams, John Hancock, Paul Revere, and Joseph Warren, James Otis was among the Sons of Liberty. In the Massachusetts State House, there is a colossal memorial to James Otis, our James Otis, for he was baptized in this house on February 29, 1756, at the age of 31. The State House mural depicts James Otis at the moment, many claim, birthed the American Revolution. Otis, a young attorney, faces white-wigged, red-robed justices of the Superior Court. For five hours, James Otis trumpets against a hated British practice, the writs of assistance. In essence, these writs permitted any royal official the absolute right, with or without cause, with or without the due process of a search warrant, to invade your home, 
your person and your place of business, turning these inside out and upside down on the off chance you had smuggled something to these shores without having paid a tax on them. The writs of assistance were arbitrary, intrusive, and led to the abuses of power. The writs were despotic and to our forebears, insupportable. The mural of Otis is enormous and commanding. The two murals that flank it, on the left, Paul Revere's ride, on the right, the Boston Tea Party, they are half the size of the one depicting Otis. James Otis's five-hour speech was, by all accounts, brilliant, persuasive, even intoxicating. It has been called the greatest oration delivered in the American colonies before the Revolution. Commenting on this epic speech, John Adams wrote, Otis was a flame of fire. And this, American independence, was there and then born. While Otis's speech inspired the patriots whipping them into a revolutionary frenzy, it incensed the royalists, a reminder that one person's freedom is another's treason. In the aftermath of this heroic five-hour speech, an Otis biographer writes, the infamous writs of assistance were as dead as the mummies of Egypt. For some 10 years, James Otis labored and thundered thus in the cause of freedom. He was a leader in opposition to the Stamp Act, to the tax on tea, to the imposition of royal troops armed and menacing in the streets of Boston. So committed was he to the cause that he gave up his work as an attorney and he renounced all recreation for the duration. It was Otis more even than Sam Adams who threw himself into the fray, but it was all too much. His intellect became overstrained and at length warped. He became excitable, irrational, eccentric, and pugnacious. It is here that the story of James Otis takes a terrible turn. One fateful evening in September of 1769, Otis entered a Boston coffee house. A royalist, a custom house official, who had grown weary of Otis's bellicosity, struck Otis with a cane. Otis lunged at him. The fight became a brawl. Otis sustained a grave head injury. His mind, which had grown irrational and excitable, seemed to have snapped that night. He suffered a mental collapse. Otis never fully recovered. And so it was that just as the curtain was rising on the great drama of liberty and independence, a drama in which this meeting house played a leading role, a drama for which Otis had written the script, just as the curtain was rising, Otis was off stage, his great oratory silenced. As John Hancock, Samuel Adams, John Adams, and Phyllis Wheatley rose to prominence, the consequential contributions of James Otis faded into memory. In his waning and enfeebled years, a friend took pity on James Otis, inviting him to the country to live out his days with their family in a farmhouse in Andover. These were placid years for Otis. Far from the battlefield in the rural countryside, he achieved a measure of equanimity. 
It was there at that farmhouse that he who ran swinging a torch in the early dawn of the American Revolution would quit the stage of life, but not without a most dramatic and startling exit. It was on the 23rd of May, the year 1783, just a few months before royal troops would finally leave our shores. A grand thunderstorm was rolling across the rural farmhouse in Andover. Sheets of rain, howling winds, crashes of thunder, and bolts of lightning convulsed the night sky. James Otis, drawn to the storm as a moth to light, opened the farmhouse door, stood there, leaned against the lintel, witnessing the impressive storm, the heroics of heaven flashing and thundering. There was a sudden crack of thunder, a lightning bolt zigzagged from heaven to earth. It made a direct hit on the body of James Otis. Instantly he died, yet there was not a mark found on his body, yet his facial expression in death was serene. He sleeps now, this great patriot and orator, our brother, not far from here in the old granary burying ground. James Otis did great justice to this mouth house, to the cause of freedom, to the rights of all. We chose to record today's service and the past two Sundays here, in this mouth house, during this election season, as a reminder that democracy is messy and costly. James Otis lost his mind. Sam Adams' home was burned to the ground. This meeting house was seized, desecrated, and damaged. Phyllis Wheatley's books of poems were held captive with the hated tea on the ship, the Dartmouth. Democracy is messy and costly. Justice is not easily won. The rights of those out of power, the voiceless, the disenfranchised, are not easily protected. What our country faces today, its divisions, its contests, the shrill and ugly conflicts over truth, is not new. As a Christian pastor, I would remind you that the forces of good and evil, justice and tyranny, generosity and greed, are real and potent. They are forever at play among us. James Otis' shaggy prophet of freedom was a forerunner to the debates this church has undertaken across the centuries, some of the most recent involving equal marriage, interreligious relations, offering sanctuary to those under threat of deportation, the climate crisis, America's original sin of racism. We take up these matters with words, with speech, for better or worse, words shape our society, make our laws, define our aspirations, decide who is in and who is out, are as stakes in the ground, declaring what we stand for and for what we refuse to let stand. Let this old mouth house and the congregation now called Old South Church never tire of the struggle, never flag in zeal for what is right, for I too assert that while the arc of the moral universe is long, it surely bends toward justice.